0: everybody what's up welcome to bible prophecy talk my name is chris it's good to be back with you again today it has been a little while since the last sort of free form podcast i just got done with the gog magog war study it was a seven part series about four hours of content i recently put that entire uh series into one video it's up on the youtube channel which you can access by going to the website BibleProphecyTalk.com. I thought I would talk a little bit about global domination and geopolitics in general in light of all the things that are happening and maybe just sort of try to war game some things a little bit. Now, I my worldview is, of course, as a Christian, I do think that there will be at least one more world government, probably two, but it will probably look a lot like the first one, but that's a story we'll talk about a little later. But there certainly will be at least one more world government, and so I expect that to happen as a Bible prophecy student. Um, but I also could see it happening because it's the logical outgrowth of man's general thirst for power. Uh, you know, the, the, the reason that the founding fathers of this country and certainly the French Revolution and different things, that the ideal that they had about liberty was at bottom a recognition that. The, the, the thirst for power will lead to tyranny in every case unless certain checks and balances are put into place. And the, those really, I mean, I, I shouldn't stop at the French Revolution. The Romans recognized it, and I'm sure other people have as well, that checks and balances were always needed against a really just seems to be rock bottom thing that man will try to do. And certainly we know from a from a Christian worldview that Satan is behind a lot of those empires. We are told it, more or less explicitly, that that is the nature of the seven-headed ten-horned beast, which is a picture of Satan and seven world empires that he has in the past and a couple in the future, well, one in the future, uh, tried to control. So my point is that that's going to happen. And if we just think, is that happening right now? I think you could make a strong case that it is. I think that there It's really one of the only theories that can explain some of the things that are happening in the world. But, and I could go into those things, but I think for the most part, most listeners of this podcast could see that already. I don't really need to convince you of that. But what I would say is to think through this a little bit to see how that transition will look like and how necessarily gnarly that will be. What I mean is that, okay, so yes, a lot of the current leaders of the world seem to be in lockstep. I don't think that whatever it was, lockstep document was misnamed. It is a situation where they all seem to be singing from the same script. And it would be one thing if that script made any sense, but it doesn't seem to make any sense. You know, there's this ideology, this, I don't know, sometimes... We call it woke. Sometimes the COVID thing has really brought it to light, I I believe, a lot in this bid for power. It's clearly at least being used to further this power grab, but the the power grab looks the same everywhere it is, which is just obviously something weird is happening. Now, we could look at things like the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab, and I know there's a lot of theories about, ah, he's not that big of a deal and da-da-da. Well, whatever. Whatever but it is interesting when you see i was looking for example at the board of directors of pfizer the other day i had a theory that you could probably go to the board of directors of any given company and you could see how serious this issue was And indeed, I didn't go through all of them. I probably went through five different board of directors at Pfizer and just went to their Wikipedia pages. And their picture of them is literally in front of the World Economic Forum. And I bet that you can do that over and over again with these major corporations. And we could get into the doctrine of the World Economic Forum and things like that. But really, it's the same kind of philosophy that people like Henry Kissinger and these sort of globalists of old, I think he's actually still alive, have advocated for. And they have done the wargaming as well. And they recognize that in order to get, to make the transition from a series of, uh, of independent states with autonomy to a global government ruled by one bureaucracy, you need to actually discredit, tear down, by any means necessary, deal with the governments of all these different countries. And so they need to be discredited, they need to be destroyed, et cetera, et cetera. It's more important, really, with something like America, which by itself has really prevented world wars from happening, at least in the conventional sense, and really nuclear weapons from the beginning have prevented that from happening. But anyway, the point is that, that we all kind of know that that's supposed to happen. Okay, you need to discredit. America's bad. Everybody's country is bad. France is bad. England is bad. Let's all go to this new thing. But but the necessary thing I'm trying to get across here is there's, there's no way that any of that happens without decades of war, and it, it, at the very least, okay? So imagine even if they convince most of the people to do a thing, right? Get the jab and, and, and join this thing and be just complete slaves and every, and the, let's say 75, 80% of the people do that, you still have that other 25% that just won't and that's not just in america that's worldwide they they will have to be dealt with and that each one of the 25 percent i'm hoping that it's more in some places and and whatnot but that whether that's france or germany or russia or china and russia and china are a whole different story that i think could come into this as well but my point is it's not just as simple as hey we're in a world government now so if the thought experiment is that they're is not just an attempt at like more control and more nineteen eighty four stuff but everybody keeps their countries, but instead the actual agenda that they're gonna try for is an actual global government. In that case, it necessarily means that there will be, first of all, civil wars and those civil wars and the chaos and everything will result in in people try people will attempt to try to do things to their own country and, you know, actual insurrections and stuff, but it will never work because the Power balance is so skewed. There is the 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 states truly do have a monopoly of force all over the world. So at best, it's going to be sort of guerrilla war that they'll be so demonized they'll become these nasty enemies of the state, and they'll be at 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 the end just these sort of ghost stories for the people that are in the system. But I don't think it stops at the civil strife or the people trying to retain their nationalism and say, hey, we don't want to go into global government. We want to keep our Germany, or we want to keep our France or Thailand. We do. It'll be more than just those independent countries trying to stop whatever it is from taking them over. That's going to be part of it. But then you're going to have other bigger geopolitical problems. The dynamics of China with this is a big question, and Russia with this are big questions, that will have to be settled in some equitable way. And in this major shift of borders and alliances and things like that, certainly there are going to be major wars that are going to happen and major people are going to grab places that they haven't had before. Some of that is under the table dealings. I believe that's probably what's happening with Afghanistan maybe right now. Thailand is probably on, or not Thailand. uh, Yeah, Thailand. Anyway, I could also see major shifts and even wars happening. Again, I don't think major wars can happen in the way that they used to because of nuclear weapons, but they may happen. And if they do, nuclear war is not out of the question in this transition, because I don't know to what degree the new world order, as it were, has control in the same way that it seems to have control over everywhere else in the West, how much it has of the East and China. Um, I would suspect some, but I don't know. So my point is, let's look at, go go back to the uh, biblical worldview. I think that it is uh, incontrovertible that the last head of the Antichrist system is a 10 nation, 10 king bureaucracy, and nothing that we have in the world looks like that right now. And one of the things that's on my heart, and I'll talk about this uh, later when I talk about a new project, is to really get people to understand that the Antichrist comes after that's already done. Whatever happens geopolitically that gets us to that 10 nation thing, which I actually think is a 10 nations that will rule Israel as well as every other country around there, (coughs) excuse me, at least around the Mediterranean, I think that's the critical part. They don't have to control the entire world, but that ten-nation thing of which the Antichrist will rise out of will exist around the Mediterranean, and it will, I think, by definition, control Israel. That is to say, Israel will not be the uh, author of its own destiny when the seventh head finally takes over. And it's interesting that the seventh head is attributed to Satan, right? It It is saying this is Satan's last empire. But when you look at the nature of what's happening with it, That is to say, the Antichrist, and this is an argument that I want to make as part of this project, the Antichrist comes after it is already settled. It's already been established. Those 10 kings are not his making. All he really does at first is he conquers. He seems to be against that system in that he subdues, he conquers, he humiliates three of those kings, but they don't go away. We know that whatever that means by that word conquers, humiliates, or whatever, they're still there. And and he doesn't become one of those kings. They just become completely subservient to him. In other words, he takes that over. He takes it over. He doesn't create it. He takes it over. And I think Daniel makes it clear that he comes after them. And so therefore, we have to understand that whatever is going to happen, we don't know how long that 10-nation thing with the redrawn empires that could be the thing that we're getting prepped to go in right now, we don't know how long that'll last. The the, the, the the beginning of the end times doesn't really start, in my opinion, maybe. I don't even think that that's one of the first things. I think the covenant with Israel is the first thing. But that's a whole other story we'll get into in a minute. Really quickly, I wanted to talk about vaccines. I am against the COVID-19 vaccine strongly. It was recently um, approved by the FDA. Uh, I watched a thing today, or listened to it rather, from Chris Martinson from Peak Prosperity, which is an excellent podcast, both an audio Podcast to subscribe to, Peak Prosperity, as well as a video podcast on YouTube. He had an excellent one today about the mandates for the vaccine. It's one of the best I've ever heard. It was from him, and I highly encourage you to listen to it. But my point here is that despite the truth more and more every day coming out that the vaccines are not only not effective, but could be in fact causing antibody-dependent enhancement, and data seems to suggest that, more data is coming out about the effects and all kinds of stuff every day yet the mandates are getting stronger and stronger it's this continued incongruency of all the truth coming out bad about it at the same time everybody is just doubling down on the get it or you are evil kind of thing and because of the fda approval more has emboldened more companies to mandate it and so a lot of people that you may have convinced before not to get the vaccine are now considering it i was blown away to hear of a lot of people that I thought, hey, I thought we had talked this through. It's like, yeah, I know, but now, and what? And you can't blame them. I mean, they're sitting in front of the a 24-hour propaganda pitch from everything that they're listening to. At this point, if you are not listening or watching something that is independent media, then you are being bombarded with the biggest propaganda blitz of all time. And how could you possibly expect somebody to withstand that? I mean, they're coming at them and, with every angle of propaganda, this tried and true uh, uh, marketing stuff that are probably on levels we don't even know that's happening. But my point is, so now we've got to reconvince them. And so what I've done is I've created a 30 minute-ish video, a vaccine video for friends and family that I just sent out to my friends and family. I don't want to post it on the website. I don't really even want to post it in the show notes. But if you want to, hear me do a video and I show all kinds of stuff on the screen lots of links I think everything somebody needs to know to not get the vaccine uh, and you need something like that and don't feel like you can articulate it and 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 all that stuff you can email me and I w- and I will send you the link to that and it's on Rumble but I don't think you'll be able to find it I, I can't seem to find it when I search it but um and you wouldn't find it anyway if you searched my name because it doesn't have anything to do with my name. So if you go to, uh, you can email me at chriswhite79 at protonmail.com. Chriswhite79 at protonmail.com and just put vaccine video or something, vax video in the subject line. You don't need to write anything else and I will uh, send you the link to that video right back. So chriswhite79 at protonmail.com. I did want to talk really briefly about something in that video, because in that video, I mentioned ivermectin and the importance of taking either ivermectin or some of the other uh, therapeutics early on as soon as you get symptoms, because you want to reduce the viral load if you get COVID-19. Anyway, as soon as I put that out, or not because of that, certainly, but the FDA came out with this big, I mean, it was just a marketing campaign, really, about don't take ivermectin, don't take horse medicine, y'all. And it was this weird thing that just took over all the headlines for a week with the FDA pleads with people not to take horse medicine. And it it was just astonishing because first of all, to characterize it that way is just an obvious attempt. One of the only ways that they can malign it because it is so hard to malign. For example, its safety profile is extremely good. What I mean by that is that you would have to take a huge amount to start getting the negative effects of ivermectin. And so these fat checkers who have no problem lying through their teeth do not use its safety as a way to talk bad about ivermectin. They almost never do. They almost never say it is unsafe because it is not unsafe so provably. Um, So, And they almost can never say it's not effective because there are something like 30 randomized clinical trials using ivermectin against COVID-19. I mean, that's a crazy amount of randomized clinical trials against COVID-19, all showing incredible, almost unbelievably good effects when given in the proper dosage and early on after the onset of symptoms. That is just incontrovertible. So they, incontrovertible? In any way, they don't say much about that. You could also point out that entire countries have adopted ivermectin to, like India and Mexico and the Philippines and others of the South America have adopted this to, as their standard of care in their uh, 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 whatever. So to call it an antiparasitic, a a horse antiparasitic, first of all, and I've I've seen them try to say, hey, this is an antiparasitic. You don't want an antiparasitic. Look, ivermectin's antiviral properties were discovered in 2012, three years before it won the Nobel Prize. It is an antiparasitic. It's classified as that, but it's also an antiviral on record. Go look that up. It's a known antiviral. I guess you just have to classify it as one or the other. I'm not sure, but not only is it antiviral, look on PubMed for ivermectin and cancer research. It very well might be the cure for cancer when taken in combination with certain. I think it's antibiotics in the case of ivermectin. There's something that you take with anti with ivermectin to act as the other pathway blocker, but I can't remember what it is. But there's tons and tons and tons of studies on PubMed using ivermectin. Uh, In cancer research. So my point is, they're literally trying to scare people away from taking it, not using its safety to scare you, not using its ineffectiveness, only saying it's for horses, y'all. Don't take a horse thing. You can win any single debate you ever had with anybody about ivermectin, and they know it, and that is why they have to censor it. All right, let me move on to some Bible prophecy stuff. And the first thing I wanted to talk about was a book that i had mentioned in the last of the Gog-Magog war study called What on Earth is Heaven Like? A Look at God's City, New Jerusalem. It is by Janet Willis. And I highly encourage you to check it out if you can. So this is a book that started out to just try to figure out what heaven was like. And it is what heaven is like. And there's a lot of detail about what heaven is like. But, the, but heaven is a city. Heaven is a place called the New Jerusalem. It's a huge city that seems to be kind of like a, I don't know, she's got amazing pictures in this thing that are just will blow you away because, and it's all based on scripture, she finds things that, you know, just seem to make a lot of sense about what we know about the New Jerusalem. But one of the key parts of this book that could be considered controversial are that she lays out the idea. Let me just first, before I get there, lay out the idea that most people, most evangelical people believe about how this will all go down. So you've got the uh, day of the Lord, right? You've got that starting, you've got that more or less ending with Armageddon. And then you have the beginning of the millennial reign, 1,000 years of peace on earth in which Jesus rules... Uh, from Jerusalem, and that happens for a thousand years, the people on earth are the descendants of those that survived the day of the Lord and the sheep and goat judgment, the people on earth uh, in Jerusalem are the descendants probably of the 144,000, particularly the 12 tribes, which will have certain allotments during that time, Ezekiel 40 through 48 goes through that, all uh, how it's all laid out. Then we have the uh, what John talks about in Revelation 20. At the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released. A great battle will happen there at the end of this thousand years. I think it is the Gog Magog war, but it really doesn't matter what you think, as long as you know that there is a battle that goes on that, at that point, in which there is a great rebellion of those mortals. You know, they, they lived for a thousand. Well, their lifetimes were. Uh, extended but they certainly could die we we can search all this stuff out through isaiah and other places in the old testament about the nature of the people during what we call the millennium which is to say they're mortals but they're in a really different world but they have to go to jerusalem for example they're ruled by a rod of iron it is a perfect government um but they do, they do rebel when Satan is released from the pit, and he goes out to deceive the nation. So he's got one last chance to deceive people, and he uses it to great effect, apparently, because the number of these people that go to war against God at the end of the thousand years are described as the sand of the sea. So a lot of people get deceived by Satan at that point. The general view, and the view that I have held up until this point, is that at the end of that uh, moment... At the end of that thousand years, that war happens. God, of course, uh, destroys that army before it gets to the beloved city. And it's used as a great memorial. I believe that, the as I argued in the Gog Magog War Study, that it's a sort of uh, a way to demonstrate the truthfulness of God, that this new, this new Jerusalem, this new uh, 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 city, this new Israel could not be conquered, that it is truly protected and it is a demonstration of that and then the as the sort of normal timeline goes then the new jerusalem descends from heaven it it supplants it sort of replaces the old jerusalem and it is a place where only eternal beings can enter it is heaven on earth we were in heaven in the city uh for that thousand years i guess in actual this the sky or wherever different dimension or what have you some people think it's actually hovering over it uh, during the thousand years or whatever, but it's, there, there is reason to believe that it sort of comes down at the end of that. So that's why people make the distinction between the millennium and the eternal kingdom. So what, what she does in this book is, in addition to, I think, one of the greatest studies of the New Jerusalem that I've certainly ever read, um, and all the details that, that I think gives you this wonderful picture of what heaven is like. But she does make the uh, case that the new jerusalem comes down at the beginning of the millennium that is to say the new jerusalem with eternal beings and it's great huge tall i mean i can't remember exactly how tall it is i think it's like um, anyway this huge city exists on earth in conjunction with the millennial reign so the eternal beings in the city And outside the city, the eternal beings can go both in and outside the city. In fact, they are ruling different parts. They're doing different things. They have jobs, but that's sort of their home, I guess you could say, in heaven. Um, But that exists alongside with this during the whole millennial reign and afterwards in the eternal kingdom. And that, that does two things for me. It solves a bunch of problems and it creates two problems. What it solves for me, and she goes through a lot of this stuff in the book, and it's good to see it in black and white, because if you're a student of the Old Testament and you know about the millennium and stuff, you know that in the Old Testament, it describes stuff and you have to say, well, that's the millennium in Isaiah. You know, there's no there's no eternal kingdom in, in the Old T- Testament. If there is, I don't know. I couldn't point you to a place to go to it. But I could point to probably a hundred passages of the millennium in the Old Testament, and and I see them all over the place. And the more that you know it, the more that you see it. But the thing I'm trying to say is that those descriptions of the millennial temple in the Old Testament sure do sound a whole lot like the eternal temple in, uh, or the, the eternal city in Re- uh, Revelation 21, etc. Or 22. And so there's a lot of that stuff. It's like, oh, well, those, those rubies and those gates sure do sound like it. So why not? Why not just say, well, one, why not just have it be there? And there are two things. First is that, and this is the big one for me, is that Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 40 through 48, which is all very technical details about the millennium, is what I would say. But, uh, and it could be both really, because he's just describing the sort of allotments of this tribe lives here, this tribe lives there. this is how big the city will be, this is how big the temple will be. And he lays it all out with cubits and all this other stuff. And the point is, is that if you do that, do that uh, calculations for how big the city and how big the allotments are. The, the Jerusalem and Ezekiel's reckoning is something like, and I'm going to get this wrong, I think. Uh, think of it, I, I, I'm not going to give you any numbers, but it's like, I can't remember. I'm going to say five times the size of the current Jerusalem. It's a lot bigger. There's no way, you have to have a new Jerusalem just to fit Ezekiel's millennial temple on top of the Jerusalem. So it's a much bigger Jerusalem. But the one that John describes in Revelation 20 when he, ta- when he talks about the new Jerusalem, so in this case, there are two new Jerusalems. The one that, this is the standard uh, view of most evangelicals, including me up until this book, is that there are, there's current earthly Jerusalem. And then for the millennium, you have a different Jerusalem that is much bigger than that. And then for the eternal kingdom, you have a different Jerusalem, which is much bigger than that. The, the, the one, the eternal Jerusalem, new Jerusalem that comes down a- after the millennium I believe John says it's something like 12,000 stadia, which works out to uh, basically like 1,500 miles square, and uh, which is just crazy big. That is the size of the entire Middle East. And he makes the point that all the sides are equal, the length, the width, and the height. And a lot of people don't know what to do with that, and they sort of make it a cube, and some people make it a pyramid. Janet Willis, I think, has the best sort of description of what it is, which is, it's basically like a city on a hill. it's this it's a, it, when you see it, you're like, oh well yeah, there's something about it that makes you like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. It even has an interesting thing that she brought up the heavenly mountain this this concept, this thread throughout uh, about his holy mountain when it when this sort of becomes that. even paralleling a Sinai thing, she's got this whole chapter in there about, how the glory of God, how it dwelled on the top of Sinai and how it said to also dwell on the top of the city, like a, a, a cloud. And that cloud and the glory of God on the top of this city becomes its light in the city. And I should go on to say that there are some things that people, uh, I should go, well, let me stop first. How do we reconcile the two different sizes of the city? And she makes the argument that uh, the dimensions that John gave in Revelation 20 or 21, I guess, are, is a cubed measurement. And if you take the, basically, if, if, if what, she, what he's doing is giving the cubed measurement, then in fact, they would be the same basic 11 miles square or whatever it was, uh, they would it would be reconciled. Now, I don't understand enough about it to know that for sure. I mean, I haven't done the calculations or whatever, so I can't, and I'm sure there's other difficulties there. But she does make some good points. Number one is that well, first you can see it for yourself. The, the way John describes this, the dimensions of his city is weird. The way that he says it is one of these things that you're like, what are you trying to say there? You know, it's more than just length width It's the same with the height than it's whatever sides or whatever. He's saying something interesting there that I'm not sure comes across in our translation. So it's weird enough to, I would say, okay, maybe he is talking about cubed. If in fact that does match up with that and the idea of things being uh, reckoned in cubit, cubes, rather, uh, like as a mathematical concept, existed well before this with the Greeks, and it was well-known in John's day. It was something that people might have done, etc. So there's that kind of stuff. I personally would have liked more detail described on that issue. Uh, if I was writing this, I would probably try to find some more stuff in ancient texts and different stuff like that to try to flesh it out a little bit. But for the sake of argument... I will say, okay, let's go with that. The other thing is about the, chrono- the seeming chronology in after Revelation 20 to Revelation, let's say, 22. So the idea is that is there a hard and fast chronology that, okay, the thousand years ended, and then the new Jerusalem happened? Do we have that kind of connecting language, and then this happened, and what have you? And I would say it does seem like that, but I would also say that the language that it uses to transition is also used in that same section to transition to just a different sort of uh, peripheral, or uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Uh, 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 you know, sort of talking about something else outside of a chronology. So I'm, I'm, and you'll have to read the book to see her argumentation with that, but I'm okay with that too. Um, But I would say, that, where was I going to go with the, the Sinai thing? The Sinai thing is interesting because uh, that, oh yeah. So it was, there are some people that say, well, there's no temple. That was one of my big hangups. Uh, there's no, because in the eternal kingdom, in Revelation 20, it says, there's no longer any need for uh, the sun there because there is no n- night in the city. So that's one thing. How could that be the same thing as the millennium? Also, there is no temple in the, the new Jerusalem. And so I'm thinking, well that can't be the same thing as the millennium because the millennium the temple is a huge part of it. But both of those things are solved the same way, which is that they were both talking about the city, not the not Israel itself. In, in fact, Ezekiel makes it very clear that the temple is not in the city. For the first time in Israel's entire history, Ezekiel says the temple will be outside the city. It will be a place where the nations and everybody comes to pay homage to the Lord but it won't be in the city, which is weird. And Ezekiel makes that point. So to see John later say, well, the temple's not, not in the city. Well, we know that city. There's no need for a, a temple in the new Jerusalem when they're literally dwelling you know, with the presence of God. Same thing with the night thing. There's no need for the sun there in the city because it is lit by the glory of the Lord. The city is, not the entirety of the world. You just have to read it. Janet Willis The book is what on earth is heaven like a look at god's city new jerusalem i won't give it a full complete endorsement because it may have some things wrong with it but i will say that there's more right with this than anything i've read on this subject in a long time so check it out what on earth is heaven like a look at god's city new jerusalem okay moving on to something i'll call the bible prophecy timeline this is a project that i'm going to start as early as next week that will just be me talking about the events that I think will happen in the end times in order and to back up not just those events, but the order that I think that they will come in, um, uh, in from scripture and from different ways. And I think that by doing that, you'll get a picture of the end times that I think is crucially important and often missing from people trying to explain the end times and what it should look like. And I think that it's going to springboard into a lot of new discoveries. And so I am excited about it. I'm just going to go through my list real quick. The first thing I think you could reasonably call an intro to the end times is a world government with 10 rulers that controls Israel, i.e. the seventh head of the beast must exist first. I think that's arguably the first thing that comes on the timeline. Before, I would have said the next thing was the first thing. But the more I think about it, that's the first thing. Second thing is the Antichrist covenant with many. Uh, That is in Daniel 9.27. That is the next thing on the list. That begins the 70th week of Daniel. Uh, That is very easy to argue. Next, I think you could say uh, temple sacrifices will begin. I think you could argue that that's the next thing on the list. Next is the Antichrist fights wars against three of the 10 of the rulers. Next, Antichrist is victorious. He surrounds Israel with his armies, sets up his palace tents. Next, Antichrist is killed. Next, Antichrist is resurrected. Next, abomination of desolation. Next, worship of Antichrist mandated. And I would include things like uh, the mark of the beast here. Next, great tribulation. Uh, Next, apostasy. Next, rapture. Next, day of the Lord. Next, Armageddon. Next, 1,000 years. Next, Gog Magog. Next, eternity. And I think that we could put all this together, and I could prove it. I think I can prove each thing on this list, and that it must come in, the, in this order. Part of the reason I'm doing this is because of this first part. I have a, a feeling or a burden that I want to explain to Christians, and I'm not sure how to do it in a, in a way that ha- can be preserved, which is that it's important for us not to believe that the final head itself, as it comes together, is the Antichrist. And I know that we will. I personally actually don't know how anybody is going to be able to resist the temptation to believe that if we do go into a world government here with this system uh, in, a, in a short amount of time, and there's persecution and there's censorship against Christians, how any Christian will not believe it's the end times. And it doesn't matter that there's no Antichrist or there's no sitting in the temple or there's no false prophet calling fire down from heaven. It won't matter as much as it's never mattered in the past that none of that stuff has happened and Christians still believe it's, it's the end times. It'll be, it'll be so hard <clears throat> because here we'll actually have a global government so that's all they'll really need and they'll find their mark of the beast and they'll find their antichrist and the thing that's really scary is that every christian across the world will be dealing with the same enemy for the first time so there will be an almost united front of christians all over the world that this system is the antichrist it is the greatest evil of all time that is so dangerous it's so dangerous and the reason is because the antichrist comes on the scene uh, comes on the scene defeating this 10 nation thing. He comes on the scene antagonistic towards it. He comes on the scene pro Israel. He comes on the scene pro uh, apparently, you know, Judeo-Christian values or whatever, right? He comes on the scene as a savior. He comes on the scene as a defeater of this evil. And that's dangerous. Now, this is what I want to talk about real quickly. The seventh head is his. He takes over that seventh head, that world government, and he shapes it in his image at first. But there's a transition in that first three and a half years before he declares himself to be God. He has complete authority over them. He's gaining authority anyway through warfare. And so that, that, that head is accredited to him in the Bible. He eventually owns that last head. But after the abomination of desolation, when he declares himself to be God and forces the worship of the, wor- the world to worship him, It becomes a different thing. It becomes mystery Babylon. It becomes this thing in which all the world for that last three and a half years is forced to make a pilgrimage to Israel to worship him, to give him gold, silver, and precious stones, rather to worship the image of the beast, which I believe is set up in the temple. Uh, But the point is, um, that is a different world government. And I believe that's why the Bible makes pains to say it's an eighth, but it's also one of the seven. nothing changed hands geographically in one sense. I mean, it's the same world government that the 10 kings, they exist all the way to the end. They're there as he attacks them at the the beginning, I believe right after the covenant is made with Israel, he immediately goes to war. He conquers them. He conquers everybody that comes into contact with after after that point. The 10 kings, as it says in the Bible, they give their authority to him. You know, they give it to him willingly. Um, But yet, so he owns, he rules that government but yet after he, I believe, resurrects from the dead right before the, the abomination of desolation, declaring himself to be God, the Bible, I believe, looks at that as an eighth, though it's one of the seven. In other words, the true aspect of the Antichrist that we need to really be watching out for is that last three and a half years, that that thing when when it's no longer even like that seventh head, when it is mystery Babylon, when it is bringing in all these things, these things that are only specific to, read my book, Mystery Babylon. Every single thing the merchants bring to Mystery Babylon are specific things mentioned in Exodus and various places in the Old Testament, Leviticus, that are needed for temple sacrifices. This is what the last point looks like. And the point I'm trying to make is that the Antichrist is going to, he's going to try to get Christians to apostatize. That's the point. The rest of the world is going to be in this n- crazy, woke, world government, lost, decadent. They're already his. There's no sense in which he needs to convince them of anything. He is coming to convince the remaining underground church to come above ground, to trust him, to worship him. And I believe that he will get to be able to do that because of the greatest false flag of all, all time. He will make sure that every Christian in the world believes that the Antichrist that he will that the, the, what he was going to destroy and take control of is the Antichrist. He needs a fake Antichrist to defeat. Before I leave, I wanted to mention a project that I've been working on. I've been calling it the Bible Prophecy Ark. This is an idea to curate the best Bible prophecy material out there online and to preserve it. I'm doing that in association with Epic.com. And Epic.com is a place to go. And this is not a sponsored thing at all. Uh, but it is just something I truly believe in. If you are a content creator and you're looking to preserve your information, to find number one, a, a domain that can—they've got something called resilient domains. They've got forever domains and something called resilient domains. It's got VPNs on your domain, so they could even do stuff with blocking domains. And they've got—look, I've talked to these people. They've got technology I don't even understand, but it's all—it's all there to to preserve information for the longest amount of time possible. But what we're working on with the Bible Prophecy Arc is going to go one step further. In addition to curating it, putting it on a separate place that's that's resilient, we're also going to make it available on as a massive download that you can put on a thumb drive and put it in a safe place and hopefully preserve it for the future generation of the church. Because here's the bottom line. I think that if we do go into a global government for a long time, it will destroy good doctrine. It only t- will take one generation of censorship, wiping the internet from all everything good. And that includes, you know, not just anything we knew about, you know, vaccines or that kind of stuff, liberty, but also everything to do with Christianity, of course, because there's so, you know, liberty and Christianity are oftentimes tied and So there's going to be persecution of Christians too. So all that's going to be gone. If just one generation passes without extreme global censorship like that, then we will have lost all the information that we'll need to be able to successfully... Well, I mean, God will provide, of course, uh, to, to, to resist the Antichrist and his false doctrine. Because brothers and sisters, he be afraid of the Antichrist. I think that's the message I need to tell people. That's the message I believe that Jesus was saying in Matthew 24. Not, don't be afraid of the Antichrist. Be afraid of the Antichrist. He's more clever than you're giving him credit for. And I believe that goes for the future church as well. So that's what we're doing with this. Uh, You can email me if you want to be a part of it in some way. Uh, The the email is uh, chriswhite79 at protonmail.com. You can also uh, email me about that Vax video if you want. ChrisWhite79 at ProtonMail.com. We'll see you next time.